We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Hello to you, Key. Hello to you, V. It's good to be back. Yes, it is. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. You, I must say you did an excellent job on your solo episode I thoroughly enjoyed it and my only comment is that I wish not even I wish I wonder if he had killed his mother first would he have not killed all those other people doesn't that seem like that was his main goal in any way yeah you know like it, it really it really does like like after killing his grandparents like I would I would have thought his mom would be his next target because even when he called her to tell her like you know that he messed up she was like well you go either you call the cops or I'm gonna call the cops for you like you know like 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 she was she really was you know of course she he killed her parents so she was pretty upset which is understandable but um at, yeah yeah because a lot of, a lot of it was because of his mom so I definitely think if he would have killed her first then he probably wouldn't have killed anyone else right because he didn't kill anyone after her he turned himself in it's like that weight was like lifted from him finally and he didn't feel the need to kill anybody else yeah 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 because like yeah because he yeah because he said that like like i just i just don't i just don't feel it anymore like they just know there's no desire to do this anymore so i definitely think that his mom was the was really who he wanted to be like who he envisioned on these other females as he was you know killing them yeah and that was it was it was really sad like you know all those women lost their lives like his grandparents and then ultimately his mom like regardless of how bad he feels like she was to her you know nobody deserved to die like that and but it just seemed like he was doing all that but his mom was really his ultimate goal. So I just don't understand why he didn't kill her first. And it's weird because he's still alive. I wonder if anybody has ever asked him that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the interviews I've seen, they just kind of like tried to try, try to break down why why he did the things he did to the females that he um, that he murdered, and and like pretty much just get just get his perspective on that. But I don't think I've heard any asking him about his mother. Yeah, that's weird. I wonder if he'll answer letters. Like, if if I wrote him a letter, would he answer? Is that weird? No, that's not weird at all. Okay, cool, cool. I'll I'll get back to you on that. Because apparently he's a model inmate, so sure, sure he'll be happy to answer questions and stuff. Yeah, with the audiobooks and stuff, it's like his life was completely different, pretty much after he went to jail. Mm-hmm. He started yes. being started being the the Ed he was always meant to be. Yeah, so that was a real wild story. I, I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah, the, um, yeah, my um, my girlfriend's mother recommended that uh criminal to me. I didn't even know he existed, so I'm definitely glad that um, I learned about him that way. Wow! So kudos on the recommendation. Thanks. So what should we talk about today? Um. Courtroom confessions. Courtroom confessions. Like, 
like someone confessing that they ate the last peanut butter sandwich in the break room? No, like on, you know, Matlock where they're like, all right, I did it. I did it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Or maybe not as dramatic as Matlock. I just, you know, that's the the one frame of reference I can pull from because I used to watch it a lot. I wish, I wish we did find a story where the person ended up saying that at the very end. After just like lies and lies and lies. Right, like you're like the prosecutor's just so cunning that they trip them up and then they just have to admit it. Yeah, exactly. Because when you get when you get caught in the lie and they keep asking you like all these roundabout questions, and it's like, yeah, 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 you lost. Yeah, well, my story isn't quite that dramatic. Hmm. Well, all right then. I'll show you again. Okay. Would you like to go first, or would you like for me to go first? for you to go first okay and we can definitely do that I guess since I you know was out last week let's give your vocal cords a rest for right now and I'll start it off so gather around children it's time for a tale of crime Erin Corwin was only 19 years old when she was tragically murdered on June 28 2014 she lived in 29 Palms, California at the time of her murder, but Erin was originally from Tennessee. She met her husband, Jonathan Corwin, while in middle school. Their relationship blossomed into a romance that continued as Jonathan pursued a career with the U.S. Marines. Jonathan ended up proposing to Erin while they were still in high school. They got married in 2012, and in September 2013, they moved to 29 Palms after Jonathan was stationed there by the Marines. But the Corins weren't prepared for the challenges that came with being newlyweds, often fighting about money and accusing each other of overspending. However, when Erin got pregnant, she was delighted, announcing it with a blue and pink post on Facebook. Unfortunately, she miscarried several weeks later, and this took a further toll on the Corwin's marriage. Erin became socially withdrawn, growing emotionally distant from her husband, who didn't know how to comfort his wife. Now, upon their move to 29 Palms, Erin and Jonathan had become close with another couple that lived on the military base, Christopher and Nicole Lee. Christopher and Nicole had also gotten married as teenagers, but were both 24 when they met Aaron and Jonathan. They had a six-year-old daughter who Aaron would babysit from time to time. So I'm guessing they were more like, you know, a couple that Aaron and Jonathan looked up to since they were both teenagers and, you know, they were more grown up being 24 and having a six-year-old. So they were kind of like their only kind of military-based friends, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So Chris had been observing Aaron when they hung out together and noticed a sadness about her. He felt the same sadness, too, and started spending more time with her without Nicole around. Over time, Aaron and Christopher grew closer. One Sunday night in February 2014, the Lees joined the Corwins in their apartment. John and Nicole watched an episode of The Walking Dead, which Aaron did not watch due to the violence. But instead of joining his wife, Nicole, 
Chris played video games with Aaron in her and John's bedroom. Chris and Aaron were seated on the floor beside each other playing the game. Then one of them paused the game and the pair started kissing. And supposedly it only lasted a few seconds, but that quick kiss changed everything and they began an affair. Which who would not see that that's where that was going? That's where it's going. Don't play video games with a girl. It happens sometimes. It does. So eventually they begin engaging in a romantic affair. The affair became intense quickly. Soon the pair was discussing leaving their spouses and what a great stepmother Aaron would be for Chris's daughter. But Nicole could sense how distant Chris had become. She checked her husband's phone and saw Chris's text to Aaron saying things like, you're so gorgeous and I think I'm falling for you. Now, Nicole confronted her husband and informed John of the affair, but was told by Aaron that it was only a fling and it would not happen again. However, the affair continued, to no one's surprise, probably. No, I'm not surprised. Now, Chris's time in the Marines was due to end on July 4th, 2014, after which he, Nicole, and their daughter Liberty... Isn't that so apropos? He's a Marine and his daughter's name is Liberty. Yes, that's beautiful. (laughs) They were scheduled to return to their home state of Alaska. But by the end of June 2014, Aaron learned that she was pregnant and she was positive that the baby was fathered by Chris, not John, her husband. Still, Aaron was excited about the baby. She expressed to her friends that she felt Chris was excited too. She even told a friend that she thought it was possible that Chris would propose to her. It was clear that Aaron felt a future with Chris was possible despite the fact that they were both still married to other people. This is likely why Aaron accepted Chris's invitation to go hiking at Joshua Tree State Park on the morning of June 28, 2014. Chris had told Aaron that he had a surprise for her. After telling Jonathan, or John, her husband, that she was going to Joshua Tree to scope out hiking areas in in preparation for an upcoming visit from her mother, Aaron met up with Chris instead. So she told John, hey, I'm going to go look in Joshua Tree National Park to see where, like, all the good hiking trails are. So when my mom comes, I can take her and, you know, we can have a good day together. And that was all a big ruse. Mm. So Aaron and Chris began their trip toward Joshua Tree together. But unbeknownst to Aaron, she would never be returning home. At some point during their trip, Chris strangled Aaron to death with the garage before throwing her body down a nearby mine shaft. When Aaron did not return home as planned that evening, she was reported missing by her husband, John. Throughout the investigation, detectives learned about the affair between Chris and Aaron. They also learned the possibility that Aaron was pregnant with his child. Chris was inevitably questioned, but he denied seeing Aaron on the day she vanished. 
just a few days later, Chris left the Marines and then promptly moved with his wife and daughter back to Alaska because that was the plan. Now, detectives did not believe Chris's story. They initially did not have enough evidence to charge him with anything. Then they discovered tire tracks that matched tires on Christopher's Jeep in the parking lot where Aaron's car was found. Investigators searched the Joshua Tree National Park on August 16, 2014, and eventually stumbled upon a mine shaft. Once they had the tools to search the 140-foot deep mine, investigators found Aaron's body. Shortly thereafter, Chris was arrested and extradited back to California to face first-degree murder charges in Aaron's case. Chris pled not guilty to the charges and went to trial in November 2016. He testified on his own behalf, and in a stunning turn of events, he admitted to the jury that he did, in fact, strangle Aaron to death with the garage, but claimed the murder was not premeditated. Chris then explained to the jury that he killed Aaron in the heat of the moment after Aaron had confessed to him that she molested his daughter. Chris claimed that he was sent into a fit of rage after that, so he proceeded to strangle Aaron to death before disposing of her body. The jury did not buy this story and ultimately convicted Chris of first-degree murder, and he was eventually sentenced to life in prison. In 2018, Chris appealed his conviction, but was ultimately denied. According to the court documents, the appeal was denied because the court believes his defense to be untrue. The documents state no one ever raised a concern about Aaron's interactions with the Lee's daughter during the time she babysat. And so unfortunately, young 19-year-old Aaron lost her life, as did her baby, for just this guy being a selfish douche that is so messed up very very and then he tried to throw her under the bus saying she molested their daughter like I'm oh is what a scumbag like don't try to throw that on somebody who's not here to defend themselves right and so but luckily he you know, didn't drag the, you know, drag it out. He just admitted what he did and how he could say it wasn't premeditated, but he had a garage with him. Yeah, exactly. Like, I was going to bring a weapon with me. Right. Just in case. Just I might in have case. To... Right. So, that is my story of a courtroom confession. It was short, sweet, and to the point, but definitely a sad ending and I feel bad for John and for Aaron's family yeah it is it is very horrible yeah I really really hate that this guy was so selfish extremely like he could have just left and went back to Alaska and just never talked to her again right exactly that would have been much easier to do than just killing her. Right. And then, you know, 
she probably wouldn't have never even said anything about John not being the real father unless the baby just absolutely looked exactly like Chris. Yeah. But even still, she'd be alive, the baby would be alive, and that would just be something they'd have to work out. Right. I have to kill someone to run away from your problems. Something something that you caused here. Right, a problem you caused on your own. Mm. So. Well, he got what he deserved. He got life in prison. So, kudos yeah. to the jury for not believing that stupidly poor plan Stupid. story. Stupid. Yes. Well, Key, that was a very, very ill-founded crime case. But I think what I'm going to tell you is going to be quite, quite surprising. I'm ready. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you about Mary Bell. Mary Bell killed two young boys in 1968. When she was released from prison after serving a 12-year sentence, she was 23 years old. What? Yeah. Mary Bell was 11 when she started committing murders. Oh my gosh. And they only gave her 12 years? Okay, yeah. I'm definitely ready for this story. (laughs) Mary Bell was born May 26, 1957 in Northumberland, England. To Betty, a 16-year-old prostitute who hated her daughter with all she had in her. She told the doctors to quote-unquote, get that thing away from me when that daughter, when her daughter was born. And she tried selling her daughter multiple times to no avail. During, during her absences from Mary, Mary would be subject to abuse, both mentally and physically. And, and Betty actually had a sister who would take care of Mary, but she was not able to adopt her because she was not able to adopt her because the mom claimed that she wanted the daughter whenever there was something like that to happen. Mary did fall from a window before as a child, and she occasionally accidentally overdosed on sleeping pills. What? Yeah, so... Mary had a very, very unfortunate childhood. Very unfortunate. According to later accounts given by Mary herself, her mother began to prostitute her out when she was just four years old. Oh my gosh. That is horrendous. Yeah, and things things changed for her when she witnessed a five-year-old friend get run over and killed by a bus. Oh, this poor girl. I... Oh my gosh. She's been through a lot and she's not even a teenager. Right. So by the time she was 10 years old, she became a strange, withdrawn, and manipulative child, always hovering on the edge of violence. I can understand. Like, she's been through a lot. Yeah, it's, um, she, she definitely had a very, very unfortunate upbringing being born to someone who only wanted only wanted money and didn't want a child to be brought into the world uh, a teenager herself who didn't know how to take care of herself and definitely wouldn't know how to take care of her daughter but 
things start to, of course, get interesting on Mary's end of the world. On May 11, 1968, Mary had been playing with a three-year-old boy when he was badly injured in a fall from the top of a bomb shelter. His parents thought it was an accident. The next day, three mothers came forward to, to the police to tell them that Mary had attempted to choke their three daughters. A brief police interview occurred, but no charges were filed. On Mary Bell's 11th birthday, Mary strangled four-year-old Martin Brown to death in an abandoned house in Scottswood. She left the scene and returned with a friend, Norma Bell, who was not related to her, to find that they'd been beaten there by two local boys who had been playing in the house and stumbled upon the body. The police were mystified. Besides a little blood and saliva on the child's face, there were no obvious signs of violence. There was, however, an empty bottle of painkillers on the floor near the body, and in the absence of better information, they assumed Martin had swallowed the pills and his death was ruled as an accident. Dang, that's sad. What makes it worse is that Martin's family started to suspect that otherwise... Martin's family began to suspect otherwise when Mary Bell showed up at the doorstep in the days after Martin's death and asked to see him. His mother gently explained to her that Martin was dead, but Mary said she already knew that and she wanted to see his body in the coffin. Oh my. Yeah, Martin's mom slammed the door in her face. Obviously, because that's pretty pretty messed up to say. Yeah, and then especially coming from, like, an 11-year-old kid. Yeah. Shortly after, Mary and Norma broke into a nursery school and vandalized it with notes taking responsibility for Martin Brown's death and promising to kill again. Police assumed the notes were a morbid prank. For the nursery school, there was just the latest and most disturbing and series of break-ins. They wearily installed an alarm system. And this alarm system caught Mary and Norma at the scene of the crime a couple nights later. But as they were simply loitering outside when the police arrived, they were let off the hook. In the meantime, Mary was telling her fellow classmate that she had killed Martin Brown. Her reputation as a show-off and a liar prevented anyone from taking her claim seriously. That is until another young boy turned up dead. This This is why it's always such a tricky thing for those students that are always like you know lying about stuff they have because when they tell the truth about something no one believes them right the boy who cried wolf syndrome yeah and and she she was like yeah i, I killed martin and everyone's like oh, mary you're, you're so full of it but she right, was who, who would believe that an 11 year old girl a would kill a, a boy first of all mm-hmm. and then would go around telling everybody about it yeah that's that's true because I'm pretty sure in the 60s, they were like, oh, you're, you're a girl. You wouldn't kill a boy. Yeah, like, you couldn't you wouldn't be strong enough. Yeah. On July, 30, on July 31st, Mary and Norma killed three-year-old Brian Ho by strangulation. This time, Bell punctured Bell, mutilated the body with scissors, scratching his thighs and butchering his penis. 
When Brian's sisters went looking for him, Mary and Norma offered to help. They searched the neighborhood, and Mary even pointed out the concrete blocks that hit his body. But Norma said he wouldn't be there, and Brian's sister moved on. When Brian's body was finally found, the neighborhood was panicked. Two boys were dead now. Police interviewed local children, hoping someone had seen something that would lead to a suspect. They received a shock when the coroner's report came back as Brian's blood was cooled and new marks appeared on his chest. Someone had someone had used a razor blade to scratch the letter M onto his torso. And there was another disturbing note. The lack of force used in the attack suggests Brian's killer might have been a child. Mary and Norma did a terrible job of disguising their interests in the investigation and their interviews with the police. Both acted strangely. Norma was excited and Mary was evasive, especially when police pointed out that she had been seen with Brian on the day of his death. On the day of Brian's burial, Mary was spotted lurking outside his house. She even laughed and rubbed her hands together when she saw his coffin. They called her back for a second interview and Mary made up a story about having seen an eight-year-old boy hit Brian on the day he died. The boy, she said, had been carrying a pair of broken scissors. And that was what caught her, because the mutilation of his body with scissors was not released to the public. It was a detail known only to the investigators and only one person, Brian's murderer. Both Norma and Mary broke down under further questioning. Norma began cooperating with police and implicated Mary who herself had admitted being present during Brian's murder, but tried to place the blame on Norma. Both girls were charged, and a trial date was set. It's it's always it's always those little details that that get that get you caught up. Right. If if she had just said, "I saw an eight-year-old boy hit him on the day he died," that would have been it. But she said, "I saw him hit him, and he was carrying a pair of broken scissors." But no, what's no, weird no. to me is that she admitted killing everybody else, but mm-hmm. then when the police asked her about this one, she lied about it. Well, well, with the first one, it was ruled as an accident almost immediately. And in this one, I guess her being in the presence of police was like, oh, snap. Because, like, you know, of course, she, she, told, she told the school children that she killed Martin, and she, she, she wouldn't tell any adults that. Oh, but well, yeah, but for these right. scary policemen to be questioning her, it's like, well, I got to tell them something to get, get the heat off of me. After being arrested, Mary Bell told the police, quote, I like hurting things that can't fight back because then I can stick needles into people. At trial, the prosecutor told the court that Bell's reason for committing the murders was solely for the pleasure and excitement of killing. All the while, the British press referred to her as evil born. The jury agreed that Mary Bell had committed the crime, had committed the murders, and handed down a guilty verdict in December. Manslaughter, not murder, was a conviction as court psychiatrists had convinced the jury that Mary Bell showed classic symptoms of psychopathy and could not be held fully responsible for her actions. Norma was regarded as an unwilling accomplice who had fallen under a bad influence. She was acquitted. Mary was Mary was quoted saying, What would be the worst that could happen to me? Would they hang me? 
an 11 year old girl. The court, the judge concluded that Mary was a dangerous person and a serious threat to other children. She was sentenced to be imprisoned at Her Majesty's pleasure, a British legal term that denotes an intermediate sentence, basically until the powers that be feel like it's appropriate to let to let you out. I think that's pretty interesting. That could just have you in jail until they're like, okay, I think that's good enough. They can they can they can be released now. I like that because they very rarely impose life without parole. Like British um like terms are usually like you get parole after a certain number of years no matter what. Like no matter what your crime, they're gonna let you go up for parole. So I like this, you know, at Her Majesty's pleasure because then that means you can't even go up for parole. And some crimes don't need parole. Yeah, some crimes don't need parole, yeah. So it would seem that the powers that be were impressed with Bell's treatment and rehabilitation and felt like it was appropriate to let Mary Bell out in 1980. She was released on license, which meant that she was technically still serving her sentence, but was able to do so while living in a community under strict probation. Additionally, Mary Bell was given a new identity to provide her with a chance to start a new life and protect her from tabloid attention. Even still, she was forced to move several times to escape hounding by tabloids, newspapers, and the general public, which somehow always found ways of tracking her down. Things grew worse for Bell after she had her daughter in 1984. Mary Bell's daughter didn't know about her mother's crimes until she was 14, when a tabloid was able to find Bell's common law husband and thus track Bell down. Soon, a slew of journalists surrounded her house and camped out in front of it. The family had to escape their home with bedsheets over their heads. Today, Mary Bell is in productive custody at a secret address. Both her and her daughter remain anonymous and are protected under court order. Some feel she doesn't deserve the protection. June Richardson, the mother of Martin Brown, told the media, it's all about her and how she has to be protected. As victims, we are not given the same right as killers. Nevertheless, Mary Bell remains protected by the British government today and court ruling protecting the identities of certain convicts are even giving are even given the unofficial term as Mary Bell orders. I find it interesting that she was able to have a, a relationship with someone. Like that she was able to get married at all, considering like, you know, her her mental state. And sure she was in she was in prison for like twelve years, but like, wouldn't it make it even harder to, like, you know, readapt to society and find a husband? I think that her issues stem from what her mother did to her when she was younger. So once she was out of that type of situation and, like, actually got the help she needed in jail, maybe she, like, really did get... I don't want to say cured, but she wasn't that person anymore. She didn't feel the need to hurt people who were not as strong as her because she wasn't being hurt by people who were stronger than her. 
like you know how they say like bullies are usually bullied at home and so they take it out on someone who is like lesser than them yeah I feel like that's kind of what was happening to her since she was being like prostituted at a young age and all these bad things were happening to her that was just how she was getting it out like was to do it to somebody who she could like you know control and she would be the more powerful one yeah okay I see I see what you mean yeah so I think once she actually got like out of the situation and in jail and actually had like doctors and things like helping her I think maybe that kind of changed things for her because I I really feel like that was she was a product of her environment yeah most definitely what would it end up happening to her mom if her mom well well I'm, I'm sure her mom knew about like you know police questioning and the court dates and trials and everything but it's just very interesting to think about she probably didn't care probably not yeah maybe maybe her aunt cared her mom definitely definitely didn't yeah and that's sad it is but it gives her no right to murder little children like especially kids so much younger than she was because like Pick on your own, like pick on someone your own size, kind of thing. If she's eleven, she killed a four-year-old and a three-year-old. Like, like those, like those kids just, like you know, started talking, walking and talking and stuff. Like they're super new to playing with other children outside. Yeah, and also easily controlled and easily dominated. Yeah, and that's probably what she was looking for—someone who was powerless to her the way she felt powerless to the people who were doing stuff to her. That's true. That's true. But if I was an adult on the sheet and I saw an 11 year old playing with a four year old or three year old, I'd be really suspicious. Yeah. Well, nowadays, you know, it's kind of like you have to be. Yeah. Yeah. But apparently even in the sixties, that kind of thing was going on. Right. Even, Even across the pond. Well, hopefully, you know, she has led a productive life in anonymity. And, you know, this is something that happened to her that's in the past. And she, you know, is not that person anymore. Yeah, unfortunately, she has to duck and dodge the press and tabloids and things like that. But Martin's mother was correct, though that like she's getting all this attention and protective services but the family lost their young boy yeah and i and i do you know feel her on that like who why would you care what happens to her she's a killer you know why does she get all this protection and whatnot when she killed their child it's like i i understand where she's coming from on that like from a victim standpoint remember um the case you had where where the man that was a murderer was like, put me on death row, whatever you need to do, just don't tell my daughter about these things. Like, like, oh, come yeah. on, that's not fair. Right, like, you know, why should she be protected and the people you killed weren't protected? Right, like, no. Like, you did, you made these choices and did these things. We're gonna tell everyone that you did these things. We're gonna, yeah. you know, you dishonored your family by killing people, so 
that's your dishonor. That's not on us. Yeah. It's like I, I definitely like feel for the victims' families in that in that respect because it does seem like okay, she's a killer, but they're giving her all this special treatment to make sure nothing happens to her to protect her. But she is not the victim in this. No. Like she's the one who did the actual crime. So why go like jump through all these hoops to protect her? It's like, so I feel what they're saying, but I think it's because she was so young and the circumstances, they, maybe they feel like I do, like that wasn't really her. That was her acting out because of her circumstances. Yeah, I suppose so. She was, she was very proud of the killings though, when she was in that, in that state. And also, also the thing about um, being a psychopath do you like do you think that properly warrants different types of treatment because like for her being a psychopath the psychiatrist said that she shows like like immediate signs of psychopathy that it should be like she should be treated differently for manslaughter and not murder because of her having signs of psychopathy I just think in this case, all things considered, because she was so young, because of what was happening to her, like, I just don't really feel like she just had a fully developed brain to know all the, like, you know, repercussions that, that killing a child would cause. Like, you know, a Ted Bundy or whatever. He was grown. He knew exactly what he was doing, what type of damage he was going to cause. He went out and made those choices. I just really feel like her age, her background, and there was more factors to just her being a psychopath. I don't think she was just born a psychopath. I think this is just what her life caused her to do. Nurture, not nature. Okay, okay. So had she been properly taken care of, I don't think those two boys would have died. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. She did have a very, very rough beginning decade of her life. Yeah. And it probably just made her numb. Like, she probably just was, you know, so used to to such bad things, it didn't even register to how bad it was. Like, maybe that's why they, they... said she had psychopathic tendencies because she was just so used to life being horrible it was just her normal yeah that's just her normal yeah I, I, could, I could definitely see that then definitely can yeah but that that was that was sad very you know tragic on both ends tragic for her and tragic for the families that you know lost their sons yeah, a quite interesting case that I stumbled upon there. I really, um, really surprised that there was one like this that existed, like openly to the public. You know, it's pretty insane. And actually, like not that long ago. No, uh, uh-uh, uh, not that long ago. She, she's definitely, she's definitely grandma age now, though. Yeah, but just barely. Like, she was born in the 50s, right? Yeah, born in 57. Yeah, so, yeah, she's, you know, just barely at the age of 
really being elderly. Well, how are we going to bring this one up? Anything good happened to you lately? I have been, I've been working, working consistently during the COVID situation. Been um, actively, you know, working full time in a job that I like. So that's been pretty good. That's good. Well, I guess, um, you know, um, well, while I've been MIA so much is because my boyfriend's kids came over from London for like three and a half weeks. And so it was a very tumultuous going from zero kids to three kids all at once with these beautiful accents. And so we just wanted to give them a real American experience. And That's pretty cool. It was super cool. I enjoyed it so much. i so sad that they had to go back, but they actually started school today. So they had to go back last week. And it was so awesome, like, having them here and showing them stuff. And one turned into, like, a professional skateboarder, pretty much. Nice. So... That was lovely. The month of of August was was quite quite nice, and I definitely enjoyed myself and enjoyed having them here. And hopefully, they can come back when they get another long vacation because their school year is like they just get like little two week vacations throughout the year. They don't get like a long summer vacation like they do here in the states. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. So I think like that little end piece of August was like the longest that they get. So. Well, I'm I'm definitely glad that that it was um, positive things going on for your hiatus and not like, you know, depression or something like that. Cause that would be not fun. Definitely, definitely. It was all positive and it was a joy and a great experience and I just missed their little accent so much. It was just so adorable, like listening to them talk to each other and then listening to them like do their American accents, which pretty much they their accents sound like valley girls and they're like, This is how you all sound to us and it's like <laughs> very valley girl like Southern California accent that they put on when they say that's what they hear and it's hilarious that is so funny it is it was good times good times good times yes well that's terrific that's terrific key well I guess that's gonna be a wrap on courtroom confessions yeah courtroom confessions both very chilling stories we had to discussed today yes hopefully we will get up to 40 then 50 and you know what people we need some help please give us some ideas on stories to do yeah the more ideas the merrier very much so and you can tweet us or leave an instagram comment at W stat underscore pod. That's W S T A T underscore P O D for both Instagram and Twitter. Our We Shouldn't Talk About This 
Facebook group is always accepting new members. We have fun. I post a lot of crazy memes because that's just what I like to do. Like, especially late at night, I post like really crazy memes. Like the one yesterday, it, it was a picture of like Goofy with a shock face and it said at the top, me licking the knife after I'm done. Yeah. And then it was like <laughs> other surgeons. Other surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> which it, it really tickled me. I was like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> I do also lick the knives when I'm finished, but only when I'm finished cooking, not surgeries. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Yes. Good save. But definitely join us there. Email us. Uh, we shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com. And, you know, if you have a story let us know like you know a, a hometown crime a crime from a specific state like anything anything wild and weird and crazy and it doesn't have to be murdery as you know we do all types of crimes our crimes run the gambit so if you want us to cover something that you've heard about let us know yes please do and for episode 32 I am V. And I'm Keith. This has been We Shouldn't Talk About This. Thanks for listening. Bye.